0: You are listening to episode 41 of the Lewis and Kyle Show with Jeff Sorg.
1: I think what what this pandemic has done um, in many ways is is, is show us that, you know, there's a lot outside of our control. Um, And I think it's been the universe teaching us a very valuable lesson in that regard.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Lewis and Kyle Show. If you're new to our podcast, we're excited to have you. Uh, Lewis and I are students at the University of Alabama, and we're on a journey to deconstruct success stories from interesting entrepreneurs, investors, and people making a big impact in the world. We're taking what we learn and applying those lessons in our own lives and sharing the best of what we learn with you, our audience. Today, we have Jeff Sorg on the podcast. I'll let Lewis intro him.
0: Jeff Sorg is the CEO of Pat Croce and Company, a family-run management company that owns many different hospitality businesses in and around Florida, as well as a collection of businesses under one roof in State College, Pennsylvania, which are actually managed by my cousin, Curtis Schulman, who we interviewed somewhere in the first 10 or 20 episodes about how he runs those nine different businesses under one roof. Uh, Jeff is the CEO of the company that operates and owns the real estate of those businesses. We brought him on to talk about his management and hiring philosophy his reading habits and the importance of old and spiritual books and in informing the way he thinks about the world and informing his daily habits. We talk about his meditation practices and what the practical benefits of those are. And we also, at the end, talk about his ultra running races that he's done and some of the benefits and fun things involved with doing that. Super fun, laid back conversation. I enjoy talking to him a lot, and I think you all will enjoy listening to it. So with that, I'm going to kite right to the interview. Thanks guys. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We're excited to chat with you.
1: Thanks for having me guys.
0: Absolutely. This is pretty fun for us. So this is, I always like to share a little bit of the context to how these interviews came to be because so much of our recent conversations have come from previous guests where you know at the beginning of the semester, Kyle and I said, all right, let's work ahead. Let's get a ton of people ready to go and interview. So I reached out to just about every past guest and said, you know, who are some, who's like one of the coolest people, you know, that we should talk to that we should bring on the show. And my cousin Curtis. Uh, who you work directly with said, "You got to bring on my boss. He's one of the most buttoned-up people I know, and I think you'd really enjoy chatting with him." So that's kind of the context for how this conversation came about. We're, we're pretty excited for it.
1: Right on. Love Curtis. He's been he's been a blast to work with.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and Curtis works at just one of the properties that you guys work at um, at Pat Croce and Company. So can you give us a little bit of context about about Pat Croce and Company and and what you guys have done? Uh, I guess over the last twenty or twenty five years.
1: Sure, Kyle. Yes. Pat Croce and Company was started by my father-in-law. That's Pat Croce, hence the name. Uh, Pat uh, has had many lives in his business career. He started in sports physical therapy out of college and made a name for himself there and built a sports PT empire and eventually sold it to Novacare and uh, went on to become a part owner and president of the Philadelphia 76ers. And then after that, after getting out of the Sixers, he he, he got into uh, restaurants and museums. He had an had a impressive pirate artifact collection that was uh, he had started amassing when he started to make money and it was piling up in his house in Villanova and uh, his wife Diane was eager to get it out of the house. So he's always looking for what's next entrepreneurially Or at least I should say he used to be when he was working actively. Um, He was always spinning plates, as he likes to say, and and had a had a lot of super high energy, had a lot of things going at once. So he uh, decided to open a pirate museum in Key West, Florida, which is a place that he loved, Um, you know, thought it would be a good fit for the museum. So we built a museum there. My wife uh, was working corporate public relations firm in Philadelphia at the time. This was just before we were married. And she moved down there to help him open the museum. At the time I was in management consulting. I was uh, at the end of my tenure in management consulting looking for a new career opportunity. I was looking at some startup companies and some tech, uh, small tech firms that I work with out on the West Coast. And Pat approached me about helping him open the museum, working with Kelly, my soon to be wife, and, and opening a restaurant next door. Um, so it was a, it was a pretty, a pretty uh, considerable shift in sort of direction, um, but it actually it actually turned out to be a, a really good move. So that led us into uh, live, led us to live live in Key West for six years, my wife and I, and in, in the Pirate Museum, which we subsequently moved up to St. Augustine, Florida. Um, but we found a good niche in, in Key West with restaurants and bars. Uh, we had up to five restaurants and bars at one at one point in time. We currently. We have three in Key West, Florida, and uh, we have four in St. Augustine, Florida, along with the Pirate Museum, aforementioned, and the uh, Colonial uh, Experience, which is an outdoor living history museum. And then we have the uh, State College Pennsylvania Market, which you referred to earlier, which is where Curtis Schulman is our director of operations, and he oversees the hotel property and the six F&B brands that comprise that portfolio. So we sort of stumbled into hospitality, to be honest with you. Um, and, and I fell in love with it. It's uh, it's funny how you end up in certain places, but uh, I, I really love the business. I love the, I love the idea of making guests day better. I love to build uh, create, and build experiences for people. And I enjoy the, the branding component to that. And also the, the team building component that is sort of crucial to our business.
0: Great. That's a uh, very helpful context for everyone listening and a much better job than we could have done of kind of summarizing what the company does. Uh, so you're the CEO of this, this group, which owns and operates these different kind of diverse projects. What exactly is your day to day as CEO and what are you in charge of and, and not in charge of?
1: Well, it's a good question. I mean, you know, so everything ultimately rolls up to me in terms of accountability. Um, you know, my day to day varies quite dramatically. I live in Villanova, Pennsylvania. So I live outside of Philadelphia, but our properties, as I just mentioned, are uh, split between Florida and State College. So State College is three and a half hours from my house here in Villanova. So, um, you know, I try to strike a work-life balance where I can be home, and that involves me working from home here in my office. Um, And based on, you know, my travel schedule is usually based on different projects that we have going on. So we bought the State College portfolio and group at uh, the beginning of the year, actually late last year, bought that. Uh, so, and I've been up there um, outside of basically being home for three months during the quarantine. I've been up there every week. Um, so it's been quite a bit of, of travel just because that's what it might, you know that's where the project and the focus needed to be right now. Um, so you know my day-to-day varies, varies a lot. It's usually checking in with my team ultimately managing such a remote team means that my job is, uh, is less day-to-day restaurant management. It's more building, recruiting, uh, and creating an inspired team. So it's supporting my, my team and building an engaged group um, that manages our businesses on our behalf.
2: So you're talking a lot about team building, and it seems to be that's kind of what you're passionate about. What does that mean to you to build an inspired team? And how, does that, um, how, how do you work on that from day to day?
1: Yeah, I, I, I don't know how to work on it from day to day. Let's see. I mean, I guess it, you know, it starts by compiling the right team. You know, first and foremost, it's putting the right people in places um, to be successful. So we we have a recruiting and a hiring philosophy that, that we've developed over the years uh, and borrowed from, you know, other thinkers and, and smart business minds that we study. And you know, I think I think it's it's led us to success in hiring what I th- what we call 51 percenters or people who are emotionally intelligent, um, wherein we we uh, we put emphasis on the empathy or or emotional intelligence of of the candidates we hire over the technical skills, uh, meaning the you know the the craft, the knowledge and experience of the craft. So I think, I think building the right team, first and foremost, Kyle, is is the most important aspect. And then it's fostering, you know, it's it's building a relationship, right? And fostering that trust. And I think that comes through through the work we do in in projects uh, and how we listen to our teams and collaborate with with the groups. Um, you know, we have a we have a belief that strong opinions held loosely. I mean, we we are really um, collaborative in how we work. We want we always want to we want to develop something that's inspired, and um, we give our teams a lot of opportunity to uh, to get involved in a lot of different aspects of projects from start to finish. And I think that's I think I think people really respond to that. You know, high potential employees and, and really love the, the you know the responsibility and uh, you know when you give them you know. The, job functions that might not be within their, um, you know, their specific job description, let's say.
0: I like that a lot. And I think that's really important to give people autonomy. And it's kind of like people tend to rise to the expectations that you set for them. Uh, but I, I have a question about what exactly you look for when hiring based on EQ and emotional intelligence. Like in a job interview or a resume, how how do you tell before hiring someone if they do or don't have that personality trait?
1: Yeah. It's, it's, it's something that I think you, you try to get a feel for, for asking them questions about different things, right? And and you sort of try to ask them non-traditional interview questions, you know, instead of asking them, what do they want to be doing in five years? I like to ask them, what do you not want to be doing in five years? <clears throat> you know, try to, try to get a sense of, of who they are and, and get them talking about other things outside the script that they may have prepared for the interview um, ultimately interviews are difficult, right? right. Um, even with our interview guides that we put together, I feel like, um, it, it can be difficult to, to really parse out, you know, the character of, of, a candidate. So a lot of it is feel, and I know that's fraught with a, a lot of inconsistency and, and, um, you know, there's a lot of weakness in that process. We try to overcome that by having multiple, uh, people interview candidates, uh, especially for key positions. so we so we sort of build a, a multi multiple perspectives uh, and then we come come together and discuss that and and hopefully that makes helps us make a more informed decision.
0: I really like that uh, the way you think about asking questions and interviewing. I mean on this podcast, we have some guests you know that have done so many podcasts where our main priority and goal is let's not let them get into scripted territory. like let's only try to ask questions that keep them off. The, the polished answers because from having done, you know, 30 to 40 of these, we can tell like once someone's executing like an automatic response to something they've heard so many times it's practiced to, oh, you know, I'm actually gonna have to think about that because that's a lot more revealing of the way they think and, you know, more, more authentic. Sure. Uh, Kyle, you look like you had a question though. Or something to um, say there.
2: I was going to ask, yeah, like, so once you get this emotionally intelligent person into your company, how do you then go about onboarding them uh, into the craft and into the technical side of the business? What, what is you guys' approach for that? It varies by position. So we try mm-hmm. to try to have
1: a combination of a new hire orientation, which is pretty, you know, pretty typical information about you know, policies and procedures roles and responsibilities, we try to introduce them during the, those two days to the brands, you know, what, what the vision is for each of these restaurants, where they're, you know, it depends on where they're working, but we try to take them through a combination of classroom, uh, uh, but then you know, they're, they're shadowing, uh, depending upon their position, they're doing shadowing shifts um, with another manager or uh, you know, skilled employee.
2: Yeah, I thought about shadowing last night because I was at a restaurant and there was a, a employee working with the, you know, obviously they were, they were training under them. And um, I just thought about like, uh, that person is going to be doing that eventually. And it's just interesting how the the restaurants work like that. And you can learn so much and you learn a lot more watching somebody do the job than you ever could reading a book about it or, or anything like that and that's you know that applies to almost everything in life.
0: Kyle pays a lot of attention to uh restaurant apprentice training more so than, than he just realized he goes to Chipotle so much uh this is what he, this is what he exposed himself to me for the other day last time we went uh he goes I was ordering you know food and getting whatever things on it and he goes she's doing a lot better like, what are you talking about? He goes, I was here on her first day. She's, she's getting a lot better. I'm like, <laughs> is this your yeah, Chipotle?
2: Well, or? For the record, I, uh, Lewis and I just did a 30 day fitness challenge and I'm not really good at buying groceries and you have to follow a diet. So basically I just did like one, one Chipotle meal a day for 30 days in a row. So I got really intimately uh, acquainted with my local Chipotle and, uh, over the span of the, of the, Um, of the month, you know, I figured out the right times to go kind of who you want to have for the rice, who you want to have for the chicken, (laughs) (laughs) complex formula that you have to, you have to figure out. You're a man of habit. Uh, Exactly.
0: Uh, So so I have another question here, kind of on a different line of thinking. These uh, operational procedures and, and habits and organizational knowledge seem to work really well for operating and maintaining a stable operation. But I know, like you said, you'd only recently acquired what's like nine different properties or nine different uh, businesses in the state college operation, and you had kind of explained that to us as a case study in change management. What exactly do you mean by that? And uh, can you kind of dive into what are some of the things you had to do when taking over a massive operation, not just running an existing one efficiently and keeping the steady flow of talent?
1: Yeah, I think we did. We did assessment during the due diligence period for that project, so we so we had some ideas, right? Of uh, did some SWOT analysis and put together some ideas that formed a roadmap. We created a roadmap of what we thought the priorities were for the property. And then we set out to communicate, right? Sort of test, evaluate those strategies through, through a combination of onsite uh, witness and, and taking, taking a look at the operation, seeing how things work firsthand, engaging with, with guests but also talking to the staff. So in State College, we have a lot of employees that have been there 10, 20, some 30 plus years. So it was talking to those people through a combination of meetings and one-on-ones. We also use some survey tools as well to get some feedback on you know, what, what they thought about the operation. What were they excited about? What were they not excited about? You know, what, you know, what did they think uh, were the pain points of the operation and the opportunities? So, yeah, we had that, we had sort of a roadmap and, and, you know, it's, it's about executing against that plan. And for us, it's about collaborating and and building a team that's excited about the vision that we have. Um, and I think that's the key, the key measure for, for us in change management is, is working with the team, collaborating with, with the team and State College to, you know, to, to work towards those vision, to, towards that vision. And it's, And it's always tricky because it's always a combination of exciting forward thinking stuff. But then we're also challenging them to show up in new ways because we have, you know, financial management practices that they may not have had. Right. They they didn't have a budget in the past. And now we're asking them the budget and we're holding them accountable to a budget on a monthly basis and things like that, which which in time they come to appreciate. Right. The the, the high potentials, the great employees, they come to appreciate it. It's, a, it's an important skill to learn. And so that's, I think that's sort of summarizes the path we've been going down in State College. Um, of course, COVID threw a wrench in, in, in all the plans, right? The, the old Jewish proverb, man plans and God laughs. We've been, we've been tossing that around quite a bit as of late.
2: Yeah, uh, I mean, I wanted to get into that because obviously being in the hospitality business, you know immediately right now people are going to think oh i guess you know i wonder how covid's been affecting been affecting them so how has it affected you and your business yeah it's it was it's been it's been a really difficult time i mean we we had to lay off you know
1: all of our employees so we laid off 500 plus wow. people at the very beginning of the pandemic and So it was, it was a challenge, you know, needless to say, you know, putting just, just being a part of, of that is something we never envisioned, imagined going through. And, and I think just the emotional um, toll that took on all of us and, you know, combined with the uncertainty. And I think it, it really tested the fact that we, you know, you feel like you have a lot of control over what the future is going to hold. Right. And I think what, what this pandemic has done um, in many ways, is, is is show us that you know there's a lot outside of our control, um, and I think it's been a, a, the universe teaching us a very valuable lesson in that regard. Um, but yeah, we've had to you know we've had to we've had to go through a lot of rethinking of how to operate and you know managing cash and of course you know getting assistance through the PPP program that was that was approved through Congress was was crucial for us um, and. Yeah, and then basically evaluate each brand and figure out each store and figure out what the future holds and what the right move is. And that was specific to each store. We decided to close one store. Uh, we uh, we then had the opportunity to, to sell another store, um, which worked out well for ourselves and for the buyer. Um, so I feel like I feel like at the end of the day we've we we got stronger through this. At least that's my initial take. Um, although you know I, I caveat that with with the, the reality is we don't have our we don't have full teams back to either so we're you know we've been hiring in waves as uh, as employees have have been comfortable and wanting to come back to work um, but also as business levels consist you know as we see the business levels improve to the point where we need where we need the staffing so we try to be we tried to be smart with bringing the staff back um, so that we can minimize the cash burn
0: absolutely And I uh, want to ask a little bit about some of the ways in which you are coming back stronger. What are some of the more creative, like innovative strategies or ideas you've had to apply or create or change to rework things, to really have any reason to say you're coming out stronger? What are some of those creative changes you've made?
1: I think, I mean, I, you know, I think like all restaurants, we reviewed all the CDC guidelines and all that jazz. Went through all the Restaurant and Lodging Association guidelines, did a lot of reading on that, came up with our own playbook of best practices for our company. And then you know, reviewed that with our managers and then came up with a plan for each store. Every store was a little bit different, but we made the decision early on that we wanted to be best in class in terms of how we operated. We felt it was super important to safeguard first and foremost our employees because we believe in taking care of employees first and then the guests second. So we felt like that was an important position for us. Um, and, and I think that's, been, that's sort of been the stance we've taken and what we've been managing to through this entire pandemic. I mean, even now as Florida opens up uh, fully, you know, we're still maintaining social distancing within our restaurants in Florida. We're still maintaining a mask requirement in Saint Augustine, we're still temp checking every guest at the door. So th- these are standards that are not in place via local ordinance or state ordinance at this point, but but we th- we feel like it's the right thing to do for our employees, right? Because you know we went through this strange time for a lot of our teams. A lot of people get into hospitality because it's an exciting, amazing place to work. If you guys have worked in restaurants at all, you know you study them by being inside of them. It's a fun, high energy place to work. Now you're flipping the script. Now coming out of COVID, and it's a really high stress, high intensity place to work, right? And, and obviously on top of that, the, the mask issue being politicized as it is, you know, you got customers irate when you know not wanting to follow requirements. So it's been a stressful time for a lot of our teams. And I think that I think that they've they've had found comfort in the fact that we've taken this stance, like we're gonna do the right thing to protect our employees and to protect our guests first and foremost. And I think in the long run, that's going to pay off. You know, I think that trade-off of maybe some short-term cash, you know, we're not squeezing the seats in uh, when we when we potentially could in Florida. I think we're gaining long-term loyal customers. And I think the communities we operate in are thankful um, that we're operating in that way, because I think it's the right thing to do for the communities.
0: Now, one thing I found that kind of summarizes that is more often than not, people just care more about clarity and consistency than they do about the actual content. So if you just, if you are consistent about the standards you're setting, like in this restaurant, we care about this because of our employees, and then you actually are consistent and enforce it, you know, the same way for everyone, they care more about that than what your actual policy is.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point, Lewis. I mean, look at, you know, look at this pandemic and, you know, there'll be lots to be written and obviously there is a lot written already about it, but from a leadership perspective, it, you know, you look at how it could have been, could have been handled better and, you know, regardless of, of political alignment, you know, for me, what, what we lacked was just a clear plan and obviously there's uncertainty and that plan is not accurate, right? you can argue the, the merits of the plan, but at the end of the day, I think what people were looking for was tell me the top five things we can do. Give us a couple of, of, you know, dates in the sand that we're working towards and give us some goals. Um, and I think in the absence of that clear and consistent communication from leadership, people create the message for you, um, which is what happened in, in the, in the, you know, with the void of that leadership information, I think all this States and municipalities, you know, we're, we're free to operate as and try to figure it out on their own.
2: Yeah. You know, it's, it's hard for, for anybody uh, back then to, to have known what to do too, though, I think. And uh, it could, it would have helped everybody a lot to know exactly what we needed to do. And, uh, but I think that it it says a lot about your company and you guys' morals to, to think and to put your, your customers first over the short term cash, because, you know, most people just wouldn't, but um, so I'm really interested in real estate and I kind of want to dive into that side of it um, right. from kind of a, a macro view. You know, I think eventually hospitality, retail and restaurants will come back to hundred percent. I don't know how long that'll take, but, but that's just, it just seems like over time it'll come back, but I'm curious to hear kind of what you see being different in the future uh, for hospitality, like some of the more permanent changes that'll stick through. The next 10 years.
1: Yeah, so I think I think COVID has accelerated pre-existing trends. So in restaurants, you had a pre-existing trend where takeout was growing considerably year over year. That's it's it's accelerated now. So that's here to stay. You know, in the in the retail space, you know, brick and mortars obviously were on the decline, online business sales are on the incline. That's been accelerated. That's here to stay, mm-hmm. right? These 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 those trends uh, that were pre-existing have just been accelerated. And I think more now entrenched. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, we do believe in the future of hospitality and I think in-person experiences will still and always have a place in our, in our world. Um, but, you know, I do think it's important that we, you know, we study and acknowledge some of these trends and we're, we're hyper aware of them as we, you know, as we chart our path forward um, for each of our stores.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I was looking today at some statistics about um, online commerce, and it's really insane to me that um, still, even through the pandemic, only 16% of, of total sales in the U.S. is online. And I just, you know, what will that look like in, in 20 years? Like, it'll be higher for sure. But I agree. I think, you know, the, um, the in-person feel, the ambiance is gonna be kind of what people are looking for in the future. But I'm also curious to hear your take on cloud kitchens because that's something that I've been hearing and and seeing a lot about here recently is this idea of, you know, being able to build out a a restaurant concept really quickly and then only doing um, online like app delivery. Are you familiar with that concept? Yeah, no, I am.
1: We were talking about ghost kitchens the other day, a friend of mine in the industry and I, yeah, I've been reading about that trend through this. It's not something we've explored because it, it, none of our businesses are really, have had a, a predomin, have had a strong online or takeout and delivery component. Not a lot of our businesses set, current stores set up very well for that. Um, so although we have moved and increased our, our business in those, in those channels, it's not a core part of our business because a lot of our restaurants are seafood based, different, different types of cuisine that don't, that don't set up well. So the last thing I didn't, I didn't feel like it was the right decision to put all our eggs and trying to make, you know, a restaurant concept that wasn't set up towards that, um, you know, take it down that path just because that was the trend. Um, it, It didn't seem like the right move for me. So we have not gotten into ghost kitchens, but, um, it's definitely a fascinating trend that, again, I'm sure it's going to be here to stay. You know, as commercial real estate uh, prices have gone up so dramatically, the ability to to get inexpensive space anywhere, stand up a kitchen, right? If your if your core competency is the you know the cooking, the execution, and the technology to support that online and takeout, right, together with a strong branding team, I mean that's a that's a fabulous business model for those that you know. That that set up well for that formula.
0: Now, that one thing that, that really makes me think of, I mean, besides just the whole first twenty minutes or so of this conversation, where you explained your skill set in hiring people and building the customer experience and the in-person elements being your core competency. We did a recent episode with uh, this author named Eric Jorgensen about this book about Naval Ravikant. This is getting convoluted. The amount of connections ex- necessary to explain this this concept. But, Dude, I
1: love it. I just finished the book. I, it's fantastic.
0: The almanac of Naval.
1: Yeah, i I, I love Naval. He's, okay. He's, he's one of my favorite follows.
0: Yeah, we had Eric on the show. That was our episode two weeks ago.
1: No way. Mm-hmm. I gotta listen to that.
0: Yeah, that's crazy that you read the book. That's score one for the for the home team.
1: <laughs> Dude, it's fantastic. I I I love Naval and I've been consuming anything I can get my hands on with him, which is typically and mostly been in podcast format, both his and when he's a guest on others for years. Um, and when I saw that book come across, I don't know how it was intru- where, where I saw it posted or on Twitter, but yeah, I bought it immediately and quickly, quickly, uh, quickly sped through. I it. Yeah. Oh, oh my gosh. I loved it. I love his principles. I've been reflecting on those and journaling a lot over the weekend, actually. Um, you know, we had a big project that we just finished and now sort of the time where. I like to take time and collect myself and, you know, and think about priorities and next steps and sort of build my foundation. Um, and yeah, that book was just found me at the right time too. I can't, wait to, hear, I can't wait to hear that conversation. So you guys both uh, read the book as
2: well? I did not read it. I haven't read it. <laughs> Lewis has a tendency to, to read books in like four hours and it takes me a lot more time, but, uh, but it was a really cool conversation with Eric, and I'm excited to tell him that we had you on and, and you had read it. and uh, he's a really good guy. and it's obvious that he had, you know, he took a million words and distilled it to a to a couple hundred page book. and obvious that a lot of the wisdom that he was distilling went through him and, and he internalized a lot of it because the conversation was really fantastic.
1: Yeah, kudos to him for doing that. And I and I heard Naval as as I was finishing up the book, Tim Ferriss dropped a an episode, podcast. yeah, a podcast episode last Thursday with Naval on again, been on two or three times. And Naval did mention the book, which I thought was cool. And obviously, the idea that he's put it up there for free and you know is not taking proceeds, it's it's pretty cool. And it reads it's it reads like you're reading Naval's journal, right? Obviously, it's mm-hmm. a little more synthesized than if it were his true journal. But I love the way it reads like that. It's, it's, it's fun.
0: No, I thought you did a great job with the pacing. And I think it's kind of funny you brought that up about Naval being on Tim Ferriss. I've gotten like deep into all the, I don't you know what you call it, the controversy around it or whatever. I guess they talked about how, you know, Naval was Tim Ferriss's best podcast of 2016, except he released one with Jamie Foxx like the day after. And so it was the second best and Naval was all upset about that. And then here we are again, like uh, on all the email lists for Tim. And it's two days later, he's like Matthew McConaughey. And I'm like, really? You're going to just <laughs> drop another A-lister right after Naval and uh, just totally kill his buzz both times. I thought that was hilarious.
1: Yeah. I saw that. I got the email about Matthew McConaughey this morning as well. I don't know if I'll check that out. Um, I'm not going
0: to listen to it, but I think the overall appeal still might be larger.
1: Yeah. I agree with you. I, I agree with you. That makes sense.
0: Um, a funny practical joke that Tim's playing on vol. <laughs> There's got to be some sort of like Silicon Valley power move, but the long story short, the reason I brought all of else? this up—oh, go for it, Kyle. Oh, well, I, I gotta at least have made the point I was trying to was, make yeah, for the the long side. Yeah, sidebar. finish.
2: I thought uh, you were done, my man. Yeah, I don't, no, but, it was otherwise that would
0: have just been a, a very long. Uh, but we, interesting, we could re- talk re- on re- that book,
1: We could talk about that on the book all, all for the next hour.
0: For real. Uh, but I was just saying that, you know, the, the concept from the book is specific knowledge where the specific knowledge that you and your company and your team and your practices really are built around is people and uh, emotional intelligence and that ambiance element and not the let's just be like created like marketers and food and just kind of have like a mm-hmm. quick process. So it doesn't make sense based on the the, the specific knowledge and the the skill sets and technical abilities you've developed over time but I know Kyle had another question queued up so that's that's the we're close wrapping a bow on the Naval comments for, for now,
2: right now. <laughs> yeah well, I, I agree with that Lewis I just think that the the really fast iteration cycles is what's going to make that business successful because people will be able to know what's working and, and change it without much um, without much friction but I just wanted to ask one more question about about real estate and that would be the. Um, uh, what do you think like the most important metric for looking at a, um, a restaurant deal would be where you're, you're trying to buy the, the building that a restaurant occupies? What, what, if you could only look at one metric before making a decision?
1: Yeah. One metric is, one metric is, is really hard. We, we, we know, take a look, right? at, <laughs> we take, we take a look at deals, take, take a look at deals and we've sort of simplified it to a framework of team concept, uh, team concept, location, and deal, um, the deal itself. So, you know, the deal itself the the real estate falls under the deal and the location for sure. Um, you know, we, we, we view real estate in our business as a, as a great thing to have, uh, because it offsets the risk of a restaurant project, right? um owning the real estate for the long term. Assuming you can buy it right, right? Because as Warren Buffett says, it's not what you buy, it's what you pay. Um so, you know, I think keeping that principle in mind, if you can find the right location and can get the dirt, you know, at a fair price, then, you know, it's a great way to start um a, a new business, any business for that matter. Um so that's, those are our few thoughts. That's kind of how I think about real estate as it pertains to our business.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have instantly regretted saying wrapping a bow on the Naval right? When I said it, cause I knew somehow I'd be able to connect back to it. So we're just going to untie that. Uh, but that's exactly the kind of, you know, judgment that he talks about in the book, the, the skill of judgment of years of accumulated experience, solving a specific sort of problems and how that your value isn't tied to you know your time, your energy, your effort. It's your ability to look at all of the complicated, interrelated factors in a situation, and then based on a combination of intuition and learned experience, like discern or, or judge what the the good decision is. And I, I like that framework a lot. It kind of is very demo. It demonstrates very well kind of the judgments you've you've accumulated in the deal sourcing and thinking about process. Uh, but I do want to transition now to believe it or not, real reading and personal development ideas. That's why I titled it in the outline uh, because you also seem to share a lot of the interests of a lot of the general themes of the show, just personal development, self-improvement, kind of setting challenges for yourself. Uh, So let's just start with meditation uh, and ask you a little bit about what your experience with meditation has been and some of how that habit came to be. And I believe Pat Croce also had this big on meditation. I don't know if those are interrelated at all, but if we can kind of start there. That was a way to get started.
1: Sure. Yeah. My father-in-law got really big in the meditation right around the time he was getting into, he was ready to retire. It worked out really well for him. The universe just conspired perfectly to put the right book in front of him in Key West one day and led him down the path that he's still on. Do you mind sharing the book? Uh,
0: If you know what it is.
1: I forget what book it was. Um, I wish I knew he's told me several times, um, but he he subsequently consumed all the books, (laughs) all of the books on, you know, spirituality that you can consume, uh, he's consumed. So I've had the, you know, I've had the, the, the good fortune of being introduced to some great books from him, uh, along those lines. Um, some of which, you know, some of my favorites are the power of now by Eckhart Tolle and, um, the uh, the untethered soul by Michael A Singer is another favorite. So yeah, it's led me led me into that into that space, which which I love because it feels like it's the, you know, in many ways it's the ultimate the ultimate sort of puzzle, right? Is and and Neval talks about this, and Eric summarizes it well and in the book. It's about you know knowing yourself, right? Is the most important is the most important thing you can be doing. Um and success is, I think the quote is something like success is is in is internal. All success all real success is internal. Um so it's definitely led me down that path, which has been awesome. Um, you know, meditation is one tool, uh part of a toolkit, right? In in that uh pursuit of mindfulness and um for people personally. So for me it's been uh meditations I've had I've had fits and starts and stops. Um it's not something I've been amazingly consistent with. Uh, I like, uh, I like to use Sam Harris's waking up app. I have found a lot of success with that. I love the way Sam has that app set up and um, myself and several friends have, have had a good, good experience with that. So guided meditation is what I typically use. Um, and, you know, I think, I think, you know, more so than meditation, it's for me, it's, it's the morning spending uh, spending time reflecting, uh, personal reflection and reading. Um, one of the things I've, I've shifted, I try to spend my morning time reading some type of philosophy or spiritual book, um, journaling and collaboration, because I feel like it's a, it, it, it's the time of day that works for me to do that. And it helps me set up my, my, you know, my personal foundation, um, to be successful. And then, you know, all the challenges and, and, and work that's ahead of me for the day.
0: What are some of those timeless works uh, you will use in the morning? And I believe you said uh, in our last chat you're big on meditations by Marcus Aurelius or I know that one. Are there any any others?
1: Yeah, I'm currently reading uh, Awareness by Anthony DeMello. i really, really enjoying that. Um, Ram Das. I like a lot of Ram Dass' books. Um, Polishing the Mirror um, is one of my favorites by him. Um, I Am That. By Maharaji is a great is a great read. Uh, as long as well as the uh, the Tao Te Ching, I'm sure you guys are familiar with the Dao Te yeah. Ching.
0: Uh, I was gonna say the other three besides the Tao I've not heard of, so I appreciate always like hearing new things on the show.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to think what other definitely the Untethered Soul for me was was probably the most. Is that one again? The Untethered Soul is by Michael A. Singer. Okay. Uh, and then The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. Uh, 10% Happier was great. Oh, yeah. like Daniel, Har- uh, mm-hmm. Daniel Harris, is it? Dan Harris, yeah. He's Dan Harris. That's a great intro book. If people are looking for an intro to sort of the field of, of spirituality and meditation, it's, it's, you know, it's it's non-secular, non-religious in any way. It's a funny, good introductory starter kit to, you know, one man's personal, personal path towards investigating, you know, meditation and mindfulness.
0: Uh, So one question um, I want to bring up to kind of bring it all together, because I agree with you and I get a lot of benefits from it as well and find it really, I mean, just intrinsically rewarding, like in the moment, it is a beneficial use of time and you enjoy the time you're spending doing these things. Uh, But what are some of the practical benefits of doing this? Like that extends beyond the actual period of doing it for you.
1: Of doing what specifically? I'd say
0: this combination of reading spirituality. Like, do you think it helps you make better decisions? Does it help you better manage temperament throughout the day? Like, what are some of the improvements in other areas of your life that you attribute to these habits?
1: Yeah, I think I think I think the path towards understanding yourself and you know learning to you know being being more aware, being aware of the voice in your head, being aware of you know your own monkey mind and 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 ultimately you know helping you know awareness creates the opportunity to create some separation um, from attachment to thoughts and i think that attachment to thoughts is ultimately leads to our suffering and i think you know every step we can take and every step i've been able to to make in in better understanding my own you know my own self and you know, self with a capital S and, you know, um, my ability to not attach to, you know, the, the thoughts that come and go. And, you know, the more I can let them flow is, is the more I can alleviate my own suffering. And that means I can, um, be better in every other aspect of my life. Right. So that means it's kind of like, like, um, the adage that I think Naval said about putting on your uh, oxygen mask before helping others. Right. And, and I love that quote because it's, it's the same principle. I think we spend time understanding how our mind works. We can be more successful, more effective, uh, and find, you know, more peace and joy in, in everything we do, whatever that might be, whether that's personal or professional.
0: Speaking of, Oh, go ahead, Kyle.
2: Yeah. Uh, sorry. I, the the breaking up is, is difficult. This Wi-Fi is, is messing with me. But I wanted to like make a point about being present. The opposite of being present for me is pretty much reading the news. And I, I know we talked briefly about you, you, you're on a low information diet, which is a concept that I was introduced to by Tim Ferriss sort of a long time ago. Um, but how has not consuming a lot of news and, and being on a low information diet affected your your ability to be present, um, in your life or just generally like how your, how your days go.
0: Can you quickly describe what that means to you, a low information diet for people who aren't already familiar with it just for some help?
1: Yeah. I made the decision a few years back and yeah, I think it served me quite well. I mean, it, it means I'm a little less informed of, of some of the, the, the headlines and things happening, current events, if you will. So, you know, I, I have those moments of where people are, shock that I don't know something that just happened potentially um, but you know I feel like you know I feel like the human brain is not designed to to digest information um, currently you know in, in 24/7 via smartphones and televisions and the 24/7 news cycle um, so yeah it, w- it was a choice and that really coincided with my decision to spend my mornings reading something more philosophical, uh, or spiritual to build my own foundation, so it felt like a real 180 shift in from reading, you know, kind of sort of anxiety-producing headlines um, about stuff that I had no control over, um, to reading about things that that could really improve my well-being, which would in in turn lead me to be, you know, better and and you know more effective and positive positive in, in everything I touch.
0: I. Uh... I'm huge on the low info diet and I can, was, you're speaking right to me when you're saying how you bring stuff up and people are like, what? You, you don't know about that? Uh, I was in the car this weekend and the, the group of friends I was now with were playing uh, the Fleetwood Mac song that's resurfacing because of apparently some viral video about cranberry juice. I was just like, Oh, this is a great song, like good taste. And they're like, Oh, it's like, just cause it's the meme. And I'm like, what are, y- what are y'all talking about I just thought they were just trying to play some music. <laughs> uh, and, and then I realized that I saw like in another group chat, I mean, this group was making jokes about cranberry juice and I was just not following any of these threads. And I think it's because most of the time, just the, uh, the life cycle of usefulness of this information is just so low that it just is not more often than not, not worth your time. I mean, obviously we just did a segment where you explain all the interesting ways you responded to COVID and have improved your business yet, you know, you're adamant about not frequently checking the news. People overestimate the importance of, or they overestimate the importance of frequency of consulting this information on a daily basis or whatever else it's, if it's important, it gets to you. Uh, Like my version of watching the news is just talking to people every so often. Like, things just come up in conversation if you need to know about them. I think uh, a really good book that you'd like is Neil Postman, if you've heard of him. It's called oh. Amusing Ourselves to Death. Okay. It's kind of like the the foundational recent book on uh, low information diet, information overload. It's really interesting. It was written in, like, the 1980s about how television is going to be this, you know, awful thing and how television is, like, destroying the American ability to have, like, deep thought and intellectual, like, arguments and... Uh, Kyle had just made a tweet about this yesterday or the day before, like the first three minutes of a televised debate from the 1970s has more substance than you're going to get from three hours of of a debate today. And this book is a really, it's kind of academic, but it's a really like thoughtful way of articulating like the best arguments for how mass media uh, exacerbates all these problematic things. And it's funny because the book is like, things are going to be really bad. And then everyone's like, no, they're not. You're an alarmist and things are like a thousand times worse. But I think it's really interesting for anyone who kind of enjoys this, this type of thinking.
1: Yeah. Fascinating. How's, how's low information diet working for you? How long, and how long have you, have you been operating? i say I've been,
0: uh, I'm less crazy about it than I was in some ways and more than in others. The term I like to use for it is like owning my inputs. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like you, you want to choose what food it's like, this is kind of checking the news is akin to someone else just making your breakfast for you every day. It's just like, and they randomly throw a plate of like junk on your plate. And it's just like, well, that's what's on my plate. I'm going to eat it. So I try most days to make it to at least noon before like letting other people into my mind. That means like, I'm not the best about this with email and social media, but I don't really follow any news accounts. So it's less problematic. Mm -hmm. Uh, But choosing what I put in front of my face until noon means I'm only going to think about the things I'm intentionally thinking about for the first couple hours of the day. So making effort on schoolwork or making like productive contributions to the main areas of my life that I care about. Uh, and I find it really, really helpful. And again, it's the, the highest consequences are missing out on trends. Like we're well, not missing out on trends, missing out on fads, uh, like not knowing what people are talking about with, with memes or small news stories. But the argument I always make is that, you know, the news should only be, if it's the 24 hour news cycle, like you said, the way that's designed is just the wrong incentives for efficiently communicating information because they are going to talk for 24 hours a day, whether or not there's anything worth talking about. Whereas reading, you know, the end of the month summary of like, okay, now that a month has passed, these are the stories we still need to care about. So all of the like major political things of the past five years, I've just really not known about, or completely ignored because the just, until the jury's out and we know what's going on, like, I'm not gonna care. So like COVID, everyone was talking about it, you know, in December and I completely ignored it. And then Kyle and I were ahead of the curve in February because I fall fallen a scene to level on Twitter. And it's like, I'm gonna trust what he says, because he's a really smart guy. And when he says it's a problem, that's when it's a problem. And so we still were ahead of the curve on knowing what's going on, even though I don't really subscribe to any news sources whatsoever.
2: I turned that to to Pat, my dad. He he was ahead of the curve, like with Nassim. But I I would say that for me, um, when I was younger, I I would like watch the weather on my phone and like get really bad anxiety about when it was going to be storming or like raining, And it's kind of like an an allegory. Like now when I see news, I just don't really believe it. It's like this headline could be true. It could be false. And that just helps me to contextualize the world I live in and not get really emotionally tied to any sort of information that I'm seeing on my phone. Just like I I was when I was little looking at, at the weather for the next two days when, you know, that's like always wrong. Yeah, it definitely helps. It's a good practice in non-attachment.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think it's also go for
1: it. I found I I just last couple of weeks ago I I resubscribed to Sunday only times. Okay. And I used to get the times for years, and and I and I didn't, but I I sort of just pulled that back in because I was missing, especially in today's day and age with you know digital. feeds and news that's, that's sort of catered to your likes and dislikes. I kind of like the idea of, of at least once a week having a newspaper in front of me that, you know, and it's, it's less about the front page and the current events. It's more so about, you know, all the other articles and, and Mm -hmm. across multiple topics, the things that I typically wouldn't be reading about or exposed to, um, you know, through any algorithm or any website I was on. I, I just like the I like the creativity and uh, and sort of the, um, you know, just the the freedom that that uh, newspaper and just sort of exploring that on a Sunday can you know can, can manifest.
0: And I think that's less about news in the traditional sense and more just about good articles and good thinking about like, things that are somewhat recent, not not news. And I I think that's a very useful useful thing to do, as well.
2: I think it's an important point too, what you said about uh, an algorithm choosing what it's going to show you. It's like, if I'm on the news app, the news app is, is made for me, right? It's trying to show me what it what it thinks will keep me on the news Maybe. app for as long as possible. But a newspaper, like a physical newspaper, they have no idea. Well, they, they probably do. I mean, who knows, but, uh, it's less customized to to catch your eyes and to keep you looking at the newspaper, which I think allows you to kind of open your mind to to um, new ideas, new essays, new things about the world that you would never see because the algorithm thinks that you don't care about it
1: yeah, for sure it's it's not it's right it, it helps you sort of get outside of your box and you know, it's not just confirming your pre-existing beliefs, right? It feels like the algorithm is just sort of sets out to keep amplifying, you know, your existing thoughts and your existing noise. Um, you know, whereas, you know, you want to, you want to find ways to get multiple perspectives and, you know, hear interesting thought about multiple topics.
0: Completely. Uh, I want to ask back to some other reading questions about more evergreen type of question. Uh, which is what books have you reread most often? Not necessarily in the spirituality category, or most, not most often, but the most amount of times.
1: Uh, I don't know, I, I'm not a big, I don't like tend to reread books very often. I know when I was young, I loved uh, Jeffrey Archer's um, As the Crow Flies. I reread that several times. Um, in fact, the lead character Charlie Trumpet was one of my favorite characters in literature. He was one of the reasons why I named my first son Charlie. What uh, is that about? It's a Rags to Riches. Good business story, kind of a Rags to Riches. I think it took place in, in England, um, you know, back in time. You know, shoe strapped it, built an operation. It was, a, it was good. In fact, it would be good to reread because it's been, it's been, probably 15, 20 years. What was the
2: name of it again? I missed it.
1: As the Crow Flies by Jeffrey Archer. Flies. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, honestly, spirituality books are the only books that I probably highlight and go back to consistently, you know, whether it's the Tao Te Ching or um, Marcus Aurelius, and, you know, those are the books that I'll always have on, you know, in a certain section and we'll come back to and, and, and flip through. Um, No, I've read good, you know, there's, you know, I love, I love to read autobiographies and biographies from a business perspective. When I was younger, I read a lot more business, you know, quote unquote business books, I think. um, And read, read, you know, all the classics like good to Great, and, um, you know, went down a lot of rabbit holes and Mm -hmm. I I, I find more than anything that those books can, you know, they're, they tend not to be worth going back to because it's, it's a lot of words about concepts that can be, you know, sort of easily deconstructed and understood and, you know, a lot less time, you know, once you, once you get the handle on them. Um, but yeah, autobiographies, I, I, I've, I fell in love with on the business sense. Um, I love snowball Warren Buffett's. Uh, it was a biography and, you know, I love Richard Branson's losing my virginity was, was a favorite book. Gotta read
2: that one. When I was graduating. I think, we, Lewis and I have, have heard that about, Richard Branson I've really fallen into his rabbit hole before. And I think that I just got to make the conscious effort to, to go for it with Richard Branson. Yeah. It's
1: that book was awesome. And, uh, anything Seth Godin writes, I, I love his work. I'm, I'm a big fan of Seth. Um, and, and, and you know I graduated with a marketing degree and I didn't learn, I, I learned more in reading his marketing books than I learned in, in my years at Penn state studying marketing, um, so love his mindset and, and all of his books. I know he has a new one coming out in next month.
2: So I think that we'll transition now to the, our, what we call our bonus round, just some less thematic um, questions. But one big thing about you that we've kind of haven't covered yet is that you're an ultra runner and have run a lot of different um, big races. So can you tell us a little bit about how you became an ultra runner and then maybe a little bit about your race in Europe? I just stumbled into running.
1: Um, I, I guess I got into trail running really? through a friend. Yeah, I stumbled into it exactly. <laughs> you know, I guess it, I guess it was a confluence of uh, several events. Uh, I was an athlete in college, and was always in, into health and, and wellness. Um, I was I, I love the gym and still enjoy uh, strength training and you know been lifting for twenty five plus years. Um, I think I reached a point. 10 years ago where i I really just felt like i needed more heart health so i started sort of casually getting into a little running other outside before that i only ran in, in support of training for soccer season so i got into running a little bit um a roommate of mine from college her husband started the spartan races the obstacle course uh race series so i was sort of introduced to that early on and that piqued my interest because it was a combination of of some running with being outdoors, but also functional, versatile body fitness. So I kind of like that idea of running and strength training and obstacles. And so I, I, had, a, I had a year or two of, of getting into the, that, the Spartan Race series, which I really enjoyed. And then um, a friend of mine asked me to sign up for uh, a trail race in central Pennsylvania called the Heiner Trail Challenge. And we've been running that the last six, seven years. And we've have we have a growing group of, of friends who, who get together and do that race and, and um yeah, just sort of fell in love with trails and, and the idea of being in the woods. Um, you know, feels like a meditation. You're working out and it's 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 just been an awesome pursuit. I really enjoy I enjoy enjoy that outlet. And yeah, I got into trail running and trail racing. The trail community is awesome, it's super low key and laid back. And, you know, it's not about, you know, the results and the fanfare. It's, it's really just about the process and the, and the joy for being in the woods um, and for running. So yeah, it's, it's, it's been fun, The the race in, in France, uh, we, we have a small group of guys that have been doing a destination race every year for the last handful of years. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's sort of akin to uh, a guy's golf weekend. Mm-hmm. I, kind of gave up golfing when I got into running big time um, and uh, it's been fun. So we've been looking for a destination uh, trip every year. And, you know, this race in Chamonix, France is kind of like the Boston Marathon of trail racing. It's, it's the pinnacle uh, race in Chamonix, France, which is Chamonix is this quaint, awesome little village in the, the base of the, of the, of the uh, French Alps and um, butts up against Italy and, and Switzerland Um, and it, and has a variety of different races. So we ran the OCC it's called, it starts in Switzerland and ends in France. And it had over, I think 10,000, uh, feet of elevation gain and just a gnarly, gnarly course. And what a great way and painful and excruciating way to, to be introduced to the, to European mountains. Um, nothing like the, the U S mountain ranges, but, uh, super technical. And, and it was just a really, really beautiful, amazing experience, uh, all around
0: 10,000 feet of elevation is, uh, nuts because I did a, right. My first marathon this week. And I just mentioned that at the beginning of this, but I thought it was only 900 feet, which we said only 900, cause we didn't think that was a lot. Cause you know, none of us knew what we were doing. We're all just a bunch of guys who aren't runners who just decided to do some runs. And it was like crushing the amount know, of Hills. It was Rolling hills constantly, so the net elevation gain it was only nine hundred, but the like continuous uphill downhill nonstop for five hours because I was slow was absolutely crushing. What what was the distance on the France run?
1: It was about thirty six miles.
0: That's was it a stage race or all in one go?
1: It was all in one go. How long did it take you? It's a good question. How long did it take me? Um. So bad at remembering numbers, um, I have to look it up. I want to guess it took me uh, was it six and a half hours.
0: Man, that sounds reasonable. Mm-hmm. that's sure. possible in the realm of possibility.
1: It was a long day of on the mountain, mm-hmm. for sure.
0: Sun <laughs> came up, then it went down. Yeah, dude. I was, was running. I'm still running.
1: It was crazy. It was really cool though. You got you ran through. You started in Switzerland. In this in the center of this really tiny village and just picture this quaint european village out of a movie and cobblestone streets and you're set you're lined up in the 50-yard lines of town in the little square and that's your that's your starting shoot start down at run through the town out of the village and then you're just sort of running in up up these hillsides through just through all these homes and little cottages and everybody's out on the street with with cowbells and and supporting you it's a really cool vibe um yeah it was it was it was amazing truly would truly truly loved it would certainly recommend it you know to any runner looking for a a cool destination experience
0: that sounds awesome i uh this race i did was in cornfields in north georgia and there was no one for most of it there was like a crushing amount of solitude uh but i'm going to take some low-hanging fruit here with the transition uh to the next question which is after a 36 mile race or a 26 mile race you get you get extremely hungry so uh the next question is what are out of all the properties you have what is your favorite meal at any of your properties just if you could order one thing off the menu right now and have it at your house from one of the different spots what would it be
1: uh, let's say I would probably say the linguine with clams from the Allen Street Grill. We just put it on the menu. We just opened the Allen Street Grill. So I've been living and breathing and eating that concept uh, every day. It feels like for the last few months and we did three months of menu development and the team up there led by our chef, Karen Nicholas and, and the entire kitchen team are doing a fabulous job. Um, the linguine with clams is is an awesome dish, and she puts some miso in the, in the broth. Ooh. There's some flavor and chili uh, in it as well, so it's got a little spice. It's, it's absolutely fabulous, and it's homemade. All the pasta there at the Onsery Grills is made in-house, and she does a
2: fabulous job with it. So I'd have to say that, linguine with clams. I've had two eggs today, so linguine with clams sounds amazing to me right now. Um, are you, dude, are you fasting? No, it's just been a long day. Uh, I don't know what time it is. I've got another meeting after this. I'll probably I'll probably hit Chipotle up at some point. My, my See local, how she's doing. Local <laughs> Chipotle. Um, but uh, this is a question that we've asked a few times. I've gotten a variety of answers, but what's one thing that fascinates you every time you think about it? Something that fascinates me. Hmm. I think the idea
1: that we are all stardust, and we are on this tiny little planet, spinning in, in the middle of nowhere. Um, and, you know, I, I think it, no matter, you know, you come across it, oftentimes reading, you know, and a lot of, I think, uh, enlightened and, and just people on the path just tend to reflect on that, on that thought, especially as you're going through a tough time, like the pandemic. But, you know, I, there's not a time when I think about that idea that I'm not that it doesn't sort of make me stop and think and, and you know sheds new light on you know the idea that we we need to make the most of our of our turn here because um, it's 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 so small and so short.
0: And one of the most memorable Marcus Aurelius ideas is kind of like the solution to any problem is just looking up at the sky uh, because it just immediately puts like the smallness of your life into perspective, like so easily. It's like anytime you're dealing with a stressful situation or a confusing moment or just anything kind of existentially terrifying, you can just look at the sky and be like, well, you know, we're all, we're all dust and everyone before and after us are going to be dust and it it, it, will be all right. So.
1: Perfectly said Lewis, really well said.
0: Appreciate it. Uh, Kyle's got a fun, more lighthearted question. uh, Queued up. I can see on the outline if you want to go for that.
2: I needed to hear that uh, to both of you. So thank you for for making that happen. Um, But this is definitely more lighthearted. I know you said earlier that you run a or you used to run a pirate museum. So what is a fun fact that, you know, about pirates? (laughs) Oh, man. Um, I'm so far removed
1: from my pirate museum days um, down in Key West um we still have the museum in st augustine as i said and uh, but cindy stavely our executive director there has been running it for years and um yeah it's funny my father-in-law is like an encyclopedia uh he's written quite a few books on pirates and has written children's books on pirate for about pirates and um you know i think one of the things that that I learned, I learned everything I knew about, you know, you know, nothing about pirates. I knew nothing. The only thing I knew about pirates before I got into or met my father-in-law was through movies, right. And Disney and the idea of pirates that were, were taught as kids. And you know, I was surprised to learn that, you know, pirate ships were one of the earliest forms of democracy um, because of how they, they, they elected their captain and, and how they, they distributed and divided, you know, the, the, the treasure, the booty, if you will, based on position. And there was a whole system and a, kind of a doctrine that governed that. Um, so it was a, you know, a band of pirates, but it, it had sort of a method to it that was somewhat democratic, which, is, which I always thought was fascinating.
0: I think uh, that definitely answers the question. That is something, looking by Kyle's face and my face, neither of us knew about pirates. Uh, so I'm gonna judge that as a more than sufficient answer to the fun fact about pirate question. I always have fun with the things that really have nothing to do with the core concepts in the interview. I'm like, you know, cause I'm still editing them at this point in time. And I pick the, the sound bite that I make like the teaser at the beginning of the episode. And I'm just like, was listening. I was like, I should make that the, the little sound, but you know, pirates were in the, I just like, I'm like hearing it come together in the, in the audio editing app like pirates are one of the first forms of democracy and people are going to like be listening and being like, where does this come up? Like how do you <laughs> run restaurants? Yeah,
1: uh, and you got to be careful with pirates because you don't want to celebrate them too much because they, you know, they, they did some vicious things and there's still modern day pirates that do some crazy shit out there. So it's, it's, uh, you don't want to, you don't want to celebrate them too much, but there was definitely, uh, definitely some interesting facts about their life and existence.
0: I mean, you could say the same about modern day democracies. They do some crazy stuff too. <laughs> well, so. Not to, not to get to, I don't even know if that's political. That's just a, a pretty blanket statement that I'm not going to give Definitely. any examples for, but it felt like saying it. That's, uh, that's fact. What's that? That's fact. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I think we're probably going to wrap it up here. This has been really fun. We like hearing how you know different people. This is something you know Kyle and I have mentioned in a couple of interviews now. Uh, when people first kind of get into this whole space of entrepreneurship and self-development and reading, like you, it's hard to meet real people in your immediate circles that. Actually, you know, read these books. And it's like, uh, we, this, the most prominent example of this that comes to mind was, an, I think, episode 22 we did with Mike Case, who is the former CEO of like a $2 billion timberland land and management company. And he's just going right back and forth with us more than like anyone else about books and articles and titles and like the same newsletters were are on and the same Twitter accounts or whatever it was. And I was like, I thought this was just for people who like pretend to uh, want to be successful, like just for people who like to talk about it. Uh, but hearing, you know, real entrepreneurs, CEOs, executives running large operations and, uh, listening to them dive into the exact same rabbit holes. Like, again, no affiliation, no prior planning. Like you actively chose through your own sources of low information diet, the Naval book made it in there. You read the whole thing. And like, that's a source of conversation for all of us. And I think this is one of my favorite parts of doing this is just realizing that this form of self-education and this way of thinking and this kind of self-improvement journaling meditation running, like these are the real habits of a lot of the people behind the scenes of businesses that we interact with on a daily basis. So I love hearing conversations like this and kind of getting those real people behind these stories and just enjoy this conversation. So I want to thank you for coming on with us.
1: Thank you guys. It was my pleasure. It was great talking with you both.
2: And that wraps up our interview with Jeff Sorg, Uh, you know, a really interesting guy. He he comes across as normal, but there's just so much so much there with him. He's very philosophically minded. I like how he's focused on on life and joy and people uh, and the people that are inside of his businesses more than he is uh, profit focused and how their company, Pat Croach and company is kind of approaching hospitality, real estate in a in a different way than just um, you know, numbers and, and leasing and, and they're trying to create an experience and an aura for people that go to go to their restaurants and, and enjoy their um, enjoy their work. And, you know, it's very obvious that he's very intentional with what he does with his low information diet and the books he reads and uh, the meditation that he practices. Um and the, you know, ultra marathons that we just get into right there at the end. <laughs> he's like, yeah, I ran through a mountain in France for a couple days last week. Miles. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, but just, you know, a really good guy. Uh, and you can feel that uh, through what he says and and uh, kind of the way he looks at the world. What do you think, Lewis?
0: Yeah, I have a few takeaways here. I think that one thing Jeff does really well is it seems like he's kind of discovered what he's good at over the years. And he's made that the focus of how he runs his businesses today. And he discusses the benefits of how that's happened and how he's come to operate that way. And I think that was a really interesting lesson. Again, I agree with you He's a very deep person. He ignores the news and he focuses on timeless wisdom. I think there's benefits to that. You know, everyone talks about evergreen content. I think I've made this idea before this concept, but I like to think of evergreen people, people that just. Are focusing on tried and true ways of living and i think he's a really good example of that with the way he thinks about the world and relationships and setting priorities and managing around people those are kind of age-old things that seem to lead to a good life and he seems to have put them at the forefront and have a good life so I think that's a very good lesson. Last thing, and this is kind of what I was saying at the end of the conversation. I'll call it the seven habits of highly effective CEOs or whatever you want to call it. It's the 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 business books, the all the internet, BuzzFeed, Reddit habits of journaling, meditation, reading, running, all these things everyone talks about. Here's a great example of case study is someone who does them all, has been practicing them for a long time. Doesn't really seem like he does them for the sake of I read this in an article. Really, it's because I do these because I'm better off, I make better decisions, I'm more stable, I'm more effective executive because of these habits and i love seeing that because it's validating to know that those things are worthwhile because there's a real world example that we can look at he's busy doing the real job so you know you don't hear people like jeff on the internet uh, making videos making youtube videos writing articles about all this stuff because he's busy doing the job but he's out there finding real importance in doing all of these things and i find that worth our time and worth your time to learn about that's all I have for this interview, episode number 41 with Jeff Storg. I appreciate you all being here and listening this far. If you're a fan of the Lewis and Kyle show and want to help us out, become a bigger, better podcast, do all those amazing things. Please leave us a five-star rating or review on Apple iTunes. That is the number one, most important, most high-impact way you can help the show grow. By doing that, we're able to land more awesome guests like Jeff and other amazing contributors we've had over the past couple of weeks. That is my call to action for you all this week. Thank you so much for listening. Check out an old book. Give it a try. Discard your new book that came out last week, unless it's the Almanac of Nifal Ravikant. Only exception, only allowable book. Otherwise, stick to the classics. Uh, There's a reason they're still around. That's all for this one, and we'll see you in a week with the next episode. Thanks, guys.
2: Thank you.